There are a lot of things that matter to me. Family, community, culture, and peace of mind. Hi, it's Wilmer Valderrama, and when balancing life, I have to say nothing brings more comfort than having support. And when it comes to ensuring those things that matter to you the most, State Farm offers the support with an agent available in person or on the phone to discuss your coverage options. Support when you need it, however you choose. That's State Farm's way. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hola, everyone. I'm Wilmer Valderrama. And I'm MR. Welcome back to Essential Voices. So, MR, you know we talk with a lot of folks in the culinary industry on the show. And usually those folks work in restaurants. So this week we're doing something a little different, right? Oh, yeah. Before we get started, MR, you were telling me earlier that you were a line cook for a long time. What did you love about working in that industry? Oof, I'm not sure I can distill it down, but... For me, sharing food and cooking is the truest expression of love. Stories become cooked into the food that I share with my friends and my family. And in turn, I feel like I'm receiving stories when I eat someone else's cooking. Recipes contain family history, they contain wisdom, and they help us maintain connections to our ancestors once they're gone. So for me, that's, that's what I love about cooking. And Wilmer, you worked as a dishwasher when you were a teenager, right? Yes, yes, I did. You know, you know, working in the back of the house, especially as a dishwasher, I realized how invisible you are. Like things just magically happen to people's tables and no one even knows who did it. No one realizes there is a person carrying 55 pounds of dishes to the dish pit. But I did become incredibly good at washing my own dishes and becoming part of the restaurant family. Yeah, I totally know what you mean. Unraveling that invisibility is powerful, and so is finding family in the restaurant community. That really resonates with me. I'll always be a line cook, so I'm really excited to hear from our essential voice, Leanne, today. So this week, we're going to hear from Leanne or Lele Martinez. Leanne runs a kitchen at the Downtown Women's Center in Los Angeles, which is an organization that works to empower and serve women who are formerly and currently experiencing homelessness. She'll take us through the joys and the stresses of working with the Skid Row community, especially during the pandemic. After we speak with Leanne, we'll have a roundtable conversation with Amy Turk, who's the CEO of the Downtown Women's Center, where Leanne works, along with L.A. restaurateurs John Shook and Vinny DiTolo behind Animal and Son of a Gun to discuss serving the needs of folks who are experiencing homelessness in Los Angeles. Amy has been in the field for 20 years now, and John and Vinny worked throughout the pandemic to provide food to various nonprofits around Southern California. I can't wait to share Leanne's incredible story with you. So let's do it. Leanne's story starts right now. Just a heads up to listeners, you may hear some sound quality issues from Lele's audio. 
Tell us a little bit about who you are and like what's important to you. Uh, my name is Leanne Martinez. Basically, my whole kind of outlook on life is everybody has something that they're really good at and they should be able to kind of use that to give back to the community. I love to cook. That's kind of my thing. I love to make people happy with food. I don't really see it as a job. And that's kind of why I'm really happy because I'm able to get paid to do what I love to do. People kind of gather around food and it's universal language. So my siblings are fighting all the time. You just give them food and everyone kind of chills out for a minute. And, you know, using the power of food, you know, it's almost like we're able to see instant gratification because I go, wow, you made that. You know, it's a connection. How long have you been cooking and how did you get into it? I've been cooking for about 12 years. I started in 2009, like right out of high school. I needed a job. I moved out. I'm like, I need to do something with my life and I don't have any skills yet. So I worked as a dishwasher at a small little cafe. I was a dishwasher too, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like everyone kind of bonds with me. Like you're a dishwasher. Yeah, I was a dishwasher. <laughs> so yeah, I kind of started off that way and I was very lucky to have a really good mentor who kind of took me under their wing mm. and I've learned a lot. I've possibly done every stupid thing you can do in a kitchen. I've probably done it. <laughs> So that way I can teach others not to do it. <laughs> so can you describe a day in your shoes? Definitely. We're basically smack dab right in the middle of Skid Row, California. And it's very interesting because you can roll into work, roll into the parking lot, and you're instantly with the population you're feeding or the people that you're going to be serving that day. We're feeding primarily women because our mission is focused on ending women's homelessness in LA because it is a huge, huge issue. My job is pretty much make sure that our team is able to put out a thousand meals before 9 a.m. A thousand meals before 9 a.m. Yeah, not in the morning, every single day. <laughs> wow. And so then after 9 a.m., you pass out successfully a thousand. And then after that, what's the next phase of, of that? Basically, we're just prepping up for the next day. So everything we do is in-house. So we're really just trying to produce product that you would get anywhere else. Is there something that you love about your work that, you know, perhaps some of us wouldn't even think about? Yeah. The women that we're serving, we were able to have the participants actually in our center. Our kitchen's open. So it's kind of like they can run up and ask us what's going on. And, you know, at some point you're kind of sitting there chopping lettuce and listening to them talk. And this was an opportunity for them to kind of use the kitchen as an outlet to kind of forget about anything that's going on. Like, hey, you want to help me prep some tomatoes for our salad? Yeah. Do you want to help me serve? Of course. And that's kind of something that I really miss. Sometimes those conversations that you're having with somebody for you is just a conversation. Mm. But to be able to be more of a listener, it really, really makes a difference. And you see, you're meeting people in their lives at certain places where you don't have no idea what's going on. So for them to be like, oh, I had a bad day. This happened to me. This happened to me. And then, you know, you have a conversation they eat lunch. They're like, you know what? I really appreciate it. Thank you. You know, and you're giving them something to look forward to, right? That's the other incredible thing that you're doing is that you're giving them an opportunity to look forward to waking up the next day. You know, I mean, I've always said, um, if you woke up this morning, you're already winning. So how much more winning do you want to do today now that you've had your first win? And them sharing that moment with you could be the small reason and why they keep going. And I think there's something incredible about that, that it goes beyond the food and, and having that community, which you had it before the pandemic, which leads me to the next sobering conversation, right? Which is then you learn that there is a pandemic. Where were you when you heard about the pandemic? And what were those conversations with your friends or your coworkers? You know, what did that sound like? I'd love to hear a little bit about that. 
realistically, I just, I remember the day it was March 19, 2020. You get a call at three in the morning and it says, Hey, center's closed. We're shut down. Figure it out. You got to go to work and figure it out. And I'm just like, cool. So, you know, from then on, it became a huge logistical scramble. So at the time we're like, you know what, we got to do these 14, 15 hour days. We got to figure it out. We're going to do it together. And what we can't get accomplished now, we're, we're going to figure it out as we go. That's kind of how it went. It was rough. I'm on the younger side. I work in Skid Row. I mean, I'm around so many things. I live in downtown. I literally did not see my family for about eight, nine months. It was rough. It was really rough. And I was speaking to my coworkers. We were all really like, whoa, this is, this is happening. We come into work at 3.30 in the morning and be like, so this is what's going on. And we, we got to adapt to it. You know, it was just like, whew. And at that point, in terms of leadership, like we were all, we were all driving that boat together. Oh, hands on one deck, of us, yeah. Yeah, if we, one of us cracked, it was, we were done. Failure wasn't an option at that point. So it was definitely, we kept going. And in terms of the participants that we were serving in the center, it was a huge hit to them because they come in one day and then they, they learn the next day that we're not even open. And how are we going to get meals out? You know, how are they going to get services? What does it feel like when people start using the term essential for you? It's very interesting because I feel like I've kind of always, in terms of when I went down to work where I work now, I, I feel like I've kind of always been essential, but I've never really boasted about it because in my eyes, like what I do, it humbles me a lot. But I say it's always been something essential because we are in Skid Row. What we do has always been essential because there's people who need food. They're always going to need food and there always isn't an outlet where someone can get it something that nourishes them physically and, you know, to keep them going. So in my mind, I've always been an essential employee. My hope is that with these conversations that we continue to remind everyone that this is not a trend, that the word essential and the people that embody it and have embodied it forever, that we should never let anyone forget the many people that have shown up like you to really change life for so many people. And even when you think about Skid Row, I mean, people probably assume it's only homeless people and, you know, and all of that stuff. There's, I mean, can you talk a little bit about, you know, the other aspect of it? Because people, the stigmatizing of the actual subject, I think is super important. It's the community. There's always all these different opinions, but what I find is it's always generalized into one big group. There are people struggling. There's people going through many, many different things. Everybody has an individual story. And I think sometimes, you know, you got to go down there and listen. People say, oh, it's dangerous to go down there, you know, not understanding or, or maybe, you know, taking the time to research what's going on down there. And I think there is the bad, but I want to say 10 times more good. It's just one big community. There's so many, there's so many, so many resources down there and you just got to go down there and get them. You know, I think about when you do jobs like this, you oftentimes carry the weight, right? I mean, you carry the weight of all the stories and, you know, how do you find the balance for yourself? In the beginning, when I first worked down there, it was a lot. Mentally, I became very overwhelmed. What I find is that the company that I work for and generally the people I work with, we all find that we're definitely all pretty empathetic and we generally take on the emotion of it all. For me personally, it was a lot of realizing that I'm very fortunate to know a lot of these individuals that were helping and I've seen them be successful and I've seen them get into housing. Sometimes I'll see them walking down the street. It's just remembering that what you do and everything that comes with the job 
there's always a positive outcome to it. I see how your work has made a, a long lasting effect in the community. And do you have a message um, for future essential workers, you know, that specifically may want to be working in your field or just in general? I think the biggest thing is, let's say, for instance, you come down to Skid Row and you want to be an essential worker and it can not just be food, but anything, case management or, on the, you know, helping anybody. It's just, there's going to be a time where you feel like, am I really making a difference with what I'm doing? And to just realize that there's going to be an instance in your work where you see something and you see somebody or you see somebody get housed or you see somebody get food. And just to know that you're a part of that, it just changes your dynamic and it just wants to push you further. Right. That's awesome. Lily, thank you so much for, for this conversation. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. I still can't get over that number. A thousand meals before 9 a.m. Think of how little we get done before 9 a.m. in comparison. Yeah, I know. Like, I normally do like a thousand crunches before 9 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I just do 500. <laughs> but seriously, though, Leanne is an impressive person and she creates joy in such a hard role. We wanted to dig a little deeper and learn more about how community organizations and restaurants stepped up during the pandemic to ensure folks experiencing homelessness were still getting hot meals. So when we get back from the break, Amy Turk and John and Vinny. I often get asked why I'm such a big fan of wrestling. And it's all thanks to my grandma. Growing up, we would watch matches together. And that bond turned me into a lifelong fan. Hi, I'm Freddie Prince Jr. And on my podcast, Wrestling with Freddie, we know how important it is to have the right teammate because things can get pretty tricky quick. So when things get complicated and you need help, State Farm gives you options. They show you what's possible for ensuring what matters to you. One of the things that matters to me sharing memories, and revisiting wrestling's greatest moments. And with State Farm's support of the Michael Tura Podcast Network, I get to do just that. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Listen to new episodes of your favorite Michael Tura shows wherever you listen to podcasts. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. We're here today speaking with Amy Turk, the CEO of the Downtown Women's Center, and Los Angeles restaurateurs behind Animal and Son of a Gun, John Shook and Vinny DiTolo. Amy, John, Vinny, hey, it's great to have you here. Hey, John. Hi, Vinny. How are you? Hi, Amy. How are you guys? Doing good. Good. Thanks. So happy to be with you guys here today. 
So I am Warren. To start us off, could everyone share a couple thoughts that you have after listening to Leanne's story? Amy, could you start us off? I have the pleasure of working with Leanne, and I just love how she takes such a great skill of hers and builds community out of it, both for the women that are served at Downtown Women's Center, for her staff that she supports, uh, and for the many volunteers that support our work as well. Vinny? Her story in particular resonated with me. John and I each started as dishwashers, have seen the full gamut of do's and don'ts in kitchens. Um, so I related on that level. And it's already grueling work working in a kitchen. It's tough. It's hard. And obviously with the pandemic, this made it so much harder. But yeah, you know, I think the people that are doing this work for the community and the unhoused is this is the most essential work that there could be done in the community because you're constantly looking for solutions to a problem that has existed for a long time and seems to constantly be overlooked and underfunded. You know, I didn't grow up in a place where I was faced with this sort of situation at hand. So, you know, moving to Los Angeles and I've been here 19 years with John and have seen it grow and know that there's so many more people just on that edge, you know, where they're almost in this situation where it's somebody that might just not be able to make ends meet. But knowing that there's so many people faced with this situation in life is obviously truly heartbreaking and something that, like I said, you always want to do more for it. John, anything you'd like to add? I think the part that resonated with me the most about what she said is just about how everyone has a different story, you know, and I think just taking a little bit of time to hear them out. And, you know, I think that part really resonated with me. Amy, can you discuss some of these changes at the Downtown Women's Center during the pandemic? And can you expand a little bit on those changes and the changes that happen behind the scenes that go beyond the kitchen? During the pandemic, Downtown Women's Center, like Leanne had mentioned, just really had to shift everything we did. We're very much an in-person service for women experiencing homelessness. And, you know, we provide on-site housing, a healthcare clinic, all the meals, the mental health services, everything is just so in person. We even run our own businesses too. We have a cafe and resale boutique and we employ women who come through our programs. So, you know, we are a business owner to some degree. And so everything just had to change, you know, so quickly. And everything just kind of stripped down to the most essential while we helped gear people up to using technology in a different way to do the kind of like higher level engagement. So our meals program expanded by more than 50%. We, the previous year served about 100,000 meals. During 2020, we served 260,000 meals. And one reason that increased is that we house women in two buildings, permanently housed. They sign a lease with us. And we wanted to make it really easy for them to shelter in place and not have to come and go and spend their little income, you know, in grocery stores and whatnot. So we were hand delivering meals, hot meals, and providing three meals a day, starting at the beginning of the day for the women that were coming to our day center. So these are women who are mostly unhoused in the Skid Row community. We wanted them to have access to enough food for the rest of the day. So certainly the meals was a huge shift. We were getting donations of cell phones and helping the women learn how to use that so that they could communicate to their staff that help them find housing, that support them with their mental health needs. 
you know, tons of new HR policies to make sure that the staff were safe and able to work from home to the degree that was possible. Um, Our resale boutique just relaunched. So we now have shoppers back inside being outfitted by our fantastic staff that are good stylists. Thankfully, our online sales have done fantastic through this time. The women that come through our programs are employed to make handmade items like candles and soaps. And those products did really well when we had more time to really focus on the online business. And we look forward in the next few weeks as we're bringing back more volunteers and people who come to our buildings to reopen our cafe as well, um, which is a coffee attic. That is something I certainly have missed through this time. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, Amy. So Leanne spoke to us about the folks that you serve on Skid Row and creating relationships with these folks who are experiencing homelessness. Can you tell us what you wish people knew about the residents of Skid Row? And as a follow-up to that, how would we reframe the conversation about caring for folks who live in our community and are experiencing homelessness? You know, what I've really appreciated about this conversation is already understanding the humanity. I mean, these are people's moms, brothers, kids, grandparents. You know, these are people with tremendous stories, just like anyone else. And seeing anyone who's experiencing homelessness through the lens of what we use as a practice called trauma-informed care, which is kind of a lens of understanding when you see someone, try not to see like what's wrong with that person but understand that something has happened to this person and something quite frankly, very traumatic. And of course, any night uh, without a house, without your basic needs adds to that trauma, which then leads to a lot of complexity uh, as people seek to get out of those situations. So, you know, if you've been to this Skid Row community, unfortunately, there's about on any given night, probably about 4,000 people experiencing homelessness, you know, right in front of you and in just 50 square city blocks. And because Skid Row was intentionally designed as the place to send people who were experiencing homelessness or had some struggles, it became the place where many social services exist today, which that's not a bad thing, but it really uh, was an intentional policy to try to contain Um, our poorest and our unhoused individuals into one area. So the need is just so obvious when you are in that community. But what I think people don't always feel and see is how much of a community it really is. I mean, I've seen people literally give the shirt off their back to someone who didn't have that or, you know, sharing food, sharing advice. At Downtown Women's Center, we don't have to do all that much outreach, really, because a lot of community members, including the unhoused, refer women directly to us. I feel protected when I'm in that community. People kind of know, like, hey, she's here to do good. Um, There's more beautiful aspects, but there's a lot of predatory behavior, too. A lot of people bring in and kind of prey on the vulnerabilities of people. Of course, women are more susceptible to gender-based violence. In my view, the people that are experiencing homelessness are more likely to be victims of crime than to perpetuate crime. So, you know, it's both. I think Leanne kind of mentioned there's kind of a tension between both the beauty and the obvious hardship in that community. That tension you're bringing up is really powerful and poignant. Thank you for sharing that. And given that all three of you, what you do professionally, John and Vinny and Amy, you're all in the caring profession, albeit in different ways, because food is care and providing access to resources is care and providing jobs for people is care. 
So could all three of you speak about how you took care of not just the folks that you serve, but your employees and yourselves throughout the pandemic? Let's start with you, Vinny. I was going to say that, you know, that was our first instinct was to check with everyone that worked with us and to see where they were. And, um, you know, we had to let go of so many people, which was the most heartbreaking thing that we could possibly have to do. John? You know, as a business owner and an operator, everybody was kind of in the blind. I mean, nobody had planned for a pandemic, studied it, knew what we were supposed to do. So there wasn't a handbook or guidance to it. But as we were going through this process, Vinny and I made sure that, hey, if somebody was out on the streets, that we made sure to take care of them. We wouldn't let anybody really kind of go by the wayside for us as we kind of made this decision that we had to focus on making sure that they had a place to come back to work for. We also kind of focused on where could we help? How do we help? You know, whether if it was giving money or giving groceries or whatever it might be, we tried to do because Vinny and I also felt like, hey, you know, it's our responsibility. We'll be right back after this break. I often get asked why I'm such a big fan of wrestling. And it's all thanks to my grandma. Growing up, we would watch matches together. And that bond turned me into a lifelong fan. Hi, I'm Freddie Prince Jr. And on my podcast, Wrestling with Freddie, we know how important it is to have the right teammate because things can get pretty tricky quick. So, when things get complicated and you need help, State Farm gives you options. They show you what's possible for ensuring what matters to you. One of the things that matters to me sharing memories, and revisiting wrestling's greatest moments. And with State Farm's support of the Michael Tura Podcast Network, I get to do just that. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Listen to new episodes of your favorite Michael Tura shows wherever you listen to podcasts. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to Essential Voices. Can you describe a moment where you were especially proud, you know, in this last year? John, why don't you go first? For me, there were so many moments, even in your industry. I mean, we worked a lot of work alongside with Motion Picture Television Academy, which, you know, typically we were their caterer for Oscars and Emmys. And now it was like reversing. And like, what was, you know, somebody who was a set designer or a stylist or something that worked in television or in a movie and like, you know, had a family like getting in a line to pick up a box of food that we prepared, you know, because they didn't know when they were going to get their next check. And like, you know, 
all these experiences being down in Skid Row, like seeing that, like really in person and connecting with, you know, the, the team at, at the mission and talking with them about, you know, what their needs were just like basic things like, Hey, can you got a line on plastic forks? We're like totally all out. And like, you know, we can't send the food out without forks. And it's like, you know, calling 20 different people that we know until we can find somebody that's willing to give us enough plastic forks for a week for just skid row, you know, and like using those relationships or, you know, we have corporate partnerships and just seeing how like they stepped up, you know, and, uh, you know, Delta airlines who we work very closely with, you know, they called us there, like, yo, we have this list of a ton of product that was going to go bad or was sitting in storage. How can we distribute it? And just like connecting them, whether it was a blanket or a pillow from an airplane that would just be sitting in storage that they wanted to pump out into the, the world to, to help. Or, you know, I think just the, the, the feeling of connecting dots. And what about you, Amy? What were some of your proudest moments from the past year? Just so many flashbacks now that we're kind of living in a more safe environment, just like going back to those moments of like we had a donation of toilet paper from Westfield malls. We were just like, oh, my God, thank you so much. You've really made a world of difference. And all those people that handmade masks for us, like, you know, them sitting in their homes out of desperation, wanting to do something to help. But that was so helpful. And then we've been a part of a larger nationwide effort through FEMA reimbursed dollars to house people in hotels. And I've been really impressed with our sector, how quickly we came together. At its peak, we had 6,000 hotel rooms supported by, you know, people who do work like Downtown Women's Center. And then now transitioning those through new federal and state dollars into permanent developments. There's been so much innovation and creativity out of this crisis. And that's what I hope continues that an urgency to it is it it's still not enough, obviously, as you're driving around and walking through Los Angeles, you see the depth of the need. And at the same time, I've never seen our sector work harder and faster to bring about really important solutions that are appreciated by the people that we serve. I'm glad that you said the word solution, because I was going to ask you what collective action the Downtown Women's Center is taking. We've heard a little bit about your Every Woman Housed Action Plan, but we'd love to know a little more about what that plan is. Since, Amy, you mentioned solutions, can you start us off? Just a few weeks ago, um, maybe some listeners have heard about the hearings that Judge Carter is presiding over, put out a mandate that every woman unhoused in the Skid Row community was to be offered housing. Yet, in that mandate, there was no how to do that. And I was like, oh, that's that's what we do. We'll tell the community how to do that. So we put forward an Every Woman Housed plan that has been well received by our city council member, our board of supervisors. Uh, thankfully, in the plan, of course, is how to get people to permanent housing resources. And that part of the plan has come forward. Um, our city council and, our, and the mayor of Los Angeles has supported an initiative that we're calling a housing justice program. Uh, that will provide permanent housing for women who are currently unhoused in the Skid Row community. Uh, Where we're still working to come together is that we do need more interim uh, shelter options uh, while we're looking for those willing landlords. And that's what we really need too, is those willing landlords who um, will, will work with our staff who provide the supports that someone needs once they've been rehoused. Um, and thankfully, due to the CARES Act and a lot of um, you know recovery dollars right now, we do have funding to pay for people's rent while we're helping them get back into employment and seek 
get the care that they need. Um, but what we really do need is the landlords. How about you, John? You know, it's a tricky balance. All of it, I could just think about people that work in the restaurant industry that might be making, you know, 18 to $20 an hour working 40 hours a week and what they could actually afford and where they could afford it. And I think you kind of have this double-edged sword because you want developers to develop, but in order for them to develop, they need to invest money. And then that investment needs to be equated and real estate costs in every major city, pretty much in the United States has gone bonkers. And there's no real win on this, right? LA has a lot of downtown development that's happened and like very little bit is for those that are in need. Most of them are expensive condos and uh, uh, apartments that have been developed and it's, you know, building costs have gone through the roof. I mean, just in the last month, a sheet of plywood's gone up 20 bucks. It's hard. It's going to be hard to kind of repair this. Uh, you know, I was reading an article the other day on America and its climb back and that it's never going to really return to where it was. You know, I've been having a, a deep talk with a guy who's worked for us for over 10 years. And he's like trying to talk about like, you know, where's he going to be in another 10 years? It's like, well, I don't even know where I'm going to be in another 10 years. You know, at this point right now, maybe in 2019, I might have had a different thought. But right now, it's hard to even give him the guidance. Vinny, anything to add? I think that for the unhoused community here in Los Angeles and in the United States at large, I mean, I think that these things need to be bills that get presented to voters. And I think that there needs to be some regulations put in place. I mean, as far as buildings go and how do you do it, like John was saying, and costs and who's investing the money and how it's actually done. I, I don't know if I've come up with any sort of great ideas myself, but I would love to, in a perfect world, like imagine that there's an opportunity for everyone that gets faced with these situations in life, that there's a place for them to go. I think that Amy could speak to this much better than I could, but the unhoused community that's near where I live, it's like you're dealing with everyone from that like is literally working and in a job that just can't afford an apartment to someone that's mentally ill that needs medical attention. Well, I could definitely go down the rabbit hole of the policing and all that stuff. I think it's ridiculous how much money we spend on policing and we could allocate funds to help these communities. And I would love to think that a lot of people think that way in Los Angeles. I believe that there is a large community of us that do. They're obviously big hurdles to jump, but these are people, these are humans, you know, treat them with some respect, some dignity. They have a story, they've had a life they've run into a tough situation. And I think ultimately, if we could get people to look at it like that, I think we'd be moving in the right direction. No, I'm so grateful for every single one of you guys' perspectives. I mean, I think if one thing is loud and clear from this conversations, this discussions, and specifically for us, you know, as we've been doing this show, and what I would say is that we don't have to wait for your local leaders or your national leaders to react. We've seen enough humanity and enough of us to wake up, to be able to reach out to one another and say, hey, we got to create a signal we can all share. We all got to get behind the message and the people, you know, and I think that what you guys have done, you know, an example is that, you know, sometimes you have to roll up your sleeves and get it done. 
you know, and you can't wait. And lobbying takes months and uh, calling your congressman is almost seasonal sometimes, you know, and sometimes the networking of your, your community of just talking to one another and leveraging each other's strengths. So I'm proud of every single one of you guys' efforts. And, you know, Amy, honestly, it's, it's nothing short of heroic what you and your team are able to do for women and, and in general, just to put a dent on the, on the big conversation that has to be, you know, louder than it is, you know, out there. But I'm just proud. I'm proud to have this conversation with you guys. And as you see, you know, there, there's, for us, it's a conversation of, you know, solutions and, and a lot of this, like in the perfect world conversation actually is the visualization of hopefully an intentional move. You know, we got to move with intentions to try to find a solution for this. In moments of crisis, all we have is each other. And the work that Amy and the Downtown Women's Center are doing, along with the contributions from local restaurants like John and Vinny's Spots, uh, you know, it really demonstrates that even during a time when we were isolated by the pandemic, folks were still out fighting for their communities to survive. And it's stories like Leanne's that reminds us to find the unique ways uh, that intersecting communities can help sustain one another. You're absolutely right, Wilmer. And this also makes me think back to our very first episode and first essential voice, Jenny, and her initiative Feed ER in Oakland. And so we're seeing how different sectors of various communities can leverage their skills to band together, providing for a common goal. And in both these cases, that goal is feeding their communities. Yeah, so proud of Leanne. And to learn more about how to support the work that Leanne and the Downtown Women's Center does, visit downtownwomencenter.org. Or if you happen to be nearby, Leanne would be happy to show you around. And there's always something for volunteers to help out with. Thank you for joining us. I can't wait for next week when we'll talk with Amina Ashraf, an entrepreneur and a rideshare driver, followed by a roundtable conversation with entrepreneur and author Lewis House and Alyssa Walker from New York Magazine and Curved about the gig economy and the future of the rideshare industry in the U.S. Essential Voices with Wilmer Valderrama is produced by me, M.R. Raquel, Allison Shano, and Kevin Rutkowski with production support from associate producer Lillian Holman, executive producers Wilmer Valderrama, Adam Reynolds, Leo Clem, and Aaron Hilliard. This episode was edited by Sean Tracy and Luigi Villanueva and features original music by Will Rosati. Special thanks to this week's essential voice, Leanne Martinez, and to our thought leaders Amy Turk from the Downtown Women's Center and restaurateurs John Shook and Vinny DeTolo. Additional thanks to Lorena Sanchez, Itzel Perez, Annalise Wilson, the UTA Foundation, and Brianne Chan. This is a Clamor and WV Entertainment production in partnership with iHeartRadio's My Cultura Podcast Network. For more podcasts from iHeart, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card... Right this way. It's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Professional wrestling, like real life, is full of surprises. Hi, everyone. It's Freddie Prinze Jr. And it's no surprise I can talk wrestling all day, any day. Kind of like how State Farm agents can talk insurance and help you choose the right coverage. When it comes to important insurance decisions, let State Farm support you with the coverage you need backed with 24-7 support. Like a good neighbor, 
State Farm is there. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. <laughs>